Lifehouse. As we continue our summer at Lifehouse series, we are privileged this morning to have a special speaker who, although I think this might age him just a little bit, uh, I was first introduced to him at my high school summer camp as our camp speaker. Uh, sorry about that, Randy. O over the years, I've had the privilege to hear Randy speak at both regional and national conferences. And Randy Remington has recently transitioned from being the lead pastor at Beaverton Foursquare Church in Oregon and is now the president of our Foursquare denomination. Lifehouse, will you stand this morning? Will you give a warm welcome to Pastor Randy Remington? been really um, looking forward and uh, to be here, and I say that sincerely. Um, uh, Ryan said some kind things about me, and I, I, I want to say kind things about him, but it almost feels like that's the deal, right? They say something nice about you, so now I got to say something nice, but, but I, I, I mean that. We really, really love Ryan and Kelly and um, are thankful for the legacy of ministry that's here, the story that God is writing and has written over the years and will continue to write, and how our lives intersect with, with God's purposes, and that's where true eternal significance is found. And so um, there's a rich foundation of ministry history and life here, and there's still a rich future to be laid hold of and contended for as well. So um, I pray for you. I uh, love your uh, pastors, and um, it's a privilege to be here. I'm glad that you saw the value in releasing Ryan and Kelly for this break. Um, there's wisdom in it. It's not that they're like crispy on the edge, ready to burn out, and this is like a stopgap thing. Uh, or it could be. I don't know. Uh, I don't think it is. That's, that's not word on the street. Word on the street. This is, this is just a wise rhythm. Um, it's just a good, proactive way of um, being replenished, um, revisioned, restored, renewed, and you will be the recipients of what God will do uh, in this time of refreshing for them. And so I just applaud that. I commend you for your graciousness to be um, uh, able to bless your, your pastors like that. Um, it's, it's significant. I, I know they're not watching online. At least they better not. And if you are, you're violating the rules of Sabbath. Uh, sabbatical, that's like a breach. Um, so get off, turn it off. Um, uh, you know, that, there's like about a four to five week detox that has to go on. You know, it's just like, oh, you got to disrupt everything. And the last sabbatical we went on, we did the same thing every seven years. Um, we were like full-blown Amish. I mean, we just went off the grid, you know. I grew sideburns and, you know, we, uh, <laughs> you know, bought goats. You know, literally, we just, we, just went, we just went extreme. But there's something really just good about just stepping back and being, being restored spiritually and being reminded that this is Jesus' church. You know, we can somehow have this disproportionate sense of responsibility, like it's going to stand or fall on me. It's like, now this thing's been going for about 2,000 plus years, and I think Jesus can, uh, he did pretty good before I got here, and he'll do well after I'm gone. And so it's just good to be reminded of that. And so uh, it's good daily to ascribe ownership of the church to Jesus, but also all the stuff of our life. And in essence, that's really what I want to talk about a little this morning, and I'm going to ask you to open your Bible to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, if you have your Bible, or if you turn on your Bible, or however you access the scripture, it'll be on the screen as well. <clears throat> Philippians is a, a 
part of a series of letters that were written to a group of people by a man named the Apostle Paul. And if you go kind of to, if you're becoming familiar with your Bible, it's towards the back end of the New Testament, the, the end of your Bible. Um, if you're familiar with your Bible, this is probably a really familiar passage. And I will let Pastor Ryan and the team, they're brilliant, they study, they're smart, they unravel the deep mysteries of the scripture. I'm going for low-hanging fruit here this morning and uh, want to encourage you. And something that I think is really significant for the day in which we live, um, I was reading something a while back where sociologists and psychiatrists were calling the day in which we live the age of high anxiety. Not just anxiety, but high anxiety. The, the levels of just chronic um, anxiousness that people are living with are unprecedented for at least Western society, how, how we've tracked culture and understand what does it mean to live in this, this kind of society and day and culture and age. They say actually high schoolers today are living with the same level of anxiety that they used to institutionalize people for in the 1950s that there's this conditioning that has happened and is happening in us to just live with this chronic sense of unsettledness. And they say it's rooted primarily in four things, um, uncertainty about the future. There's like, there's nothing that's like everything's up for grabs. There's no predictability. There, what used to be um, certainty in terms of at least the, 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 the generational kind of way we used to live life and think about life, there's, it, it just seems like the snow globe's just constantly being shaken and everything's disoriented continually. There's uncontrolled circumstances that we, it's just beyond, we didn't create these circumstances, but, but we're affected by them. And so that's significant in this anxiousness unreconciled relationships. How many of you would agree that we live in a day of just real peace and harmony, don't we? Uh, it's just, it seems like the disunity, the division, the fracturing of just even long-standing family relationships and church relationships and work, it just, over the smallest things, people go from zero to 60 overnight relationally and divide and the polarity that exists around different issues and positions. And so the unreconciled nature of relationships, and then the fourth thing is, they say actually the most significant in this chronic sense of anxiousness is this preoccupation with ourselves. This sense of um, everything's about me. And you live in this constant state of comparison and dissatisfaction as a result, and social media, they say, actually drives that significantly. And so my question, is it possible that we could live countercultural lives. If that's the norm, that we're living in the day of high anxiety, um, fearfulness, unsettledness, um, drivenness, is it possible as sons and daughters of God, those who live in the kingdom of heaven, heaven coming to earth and breaking in as Jesus is enthroned in our hearts, is it possible to live peaceable lives? And does the scripture give us promises of peace as something to taunt us or as a true possibility that we could lay hold of and live within? Because we easily adapt to and become conditioned by the culture around us if we're not careful. And we think that that's the normal way that we live. And then we just throw a little Christian culture around that. 
I was in a master's program um, schooling about eight, nine years ago and um, from a university in, in Portland, and I had a research project I had to do, so I uh, contracted with a research librarian at the university, which I'd never used before, but I needed help on this particular assignment. And so this was Monday morning, the day after Easter, which was a big deal. We had eight services that weekend in our church, and so, you know, they kind of lead up. Um, it's an intense uh, little season. And so... I went and I met with this guy and never met him before, and he's sitting at his desk, and he's got this beautiful golden retriever at his feet, and it has a service vest on. Now, I know etiquette is you're not supposed to say, hey, what's your dog do, you know? But I said, hey, what's your dog do? And, <laughs> and uh, he said, I'm a combat vet, and I've got post-traumatic stress disorder, and the dog actually is trained to detect my anxiousness. And when I'm starting to get anxious, the dog will just lay at my feet, like, light, like right at the nudging against him, just touching him. He said, if I'm starting to get really worked up, the dog will sit up and make eye contact with me. And he goes, and when I'm really reaching kind of a tipping point, the dog will just like climb up in his lap and just like really distract him and get his attention. And so, I mean, that's amazing. And I was marveling at that. And we just kind of started with the work. And then about 15 minutes in, the dog gets up and comes around and lays at my feet. And so we're, we're talking, and, and all of a sudden, the dog literally sits up and just locks eyes with me, and it's just like, and then a few minutes later, true story, climbs up into my lap, and that guy goes, are you doing okay? And I said, apparently not. It's like, it's like the dog don't lie, you know, and you know, it's kind of like, I don't even know what's going on in there. It's like, am I like just being driven? Is, is my living kind of on the edge of exhaustion? And what kind of, what's going on in my heart? Am I not attuned to what's happening there? And so I, I want us to step back and not do a bunch of introspection, but I want us to consider what is something in the scripture as a promise given to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus by the spirit that could become a reality for us. And I want to differentiate between what is an issue of mental illness, anxiety disorders are the number one form of mental illness that exists today, they say. And the church has, always, has not always done a good job with talking about mental illness. There's oftentimes a stigma attached to that, and so people hide um, and suffer without the kind of ministry or help or encouragement that could come. And I'm, I'm not speaking to mental illness this morning. I want to I wanna be careful to say that. I mean, if, if somebody was diagnosed with cancer and they came forward and said, I, I've got cancer, we would rally around them. We would pray for them. We'd lay hands on them. We'd, we'd see if we could serve them, help them practically. We would stand with them if they were going through treatment. And if somebody's battling something of a mental illness, oftentimes we, we don't know what to do with that. But we want to say the church should be a safe place for people to be ministered to in any capacity, in any um, uh, aspect of our need for the, for the healing and the power of Jesus in our life. But I, I want to be careful not to minimize that as I speak to what is just really this chronic, almost low-grade, constant sense of anxiousness that we tend to be living, living in that's just driving people with a sense of fear and worry and unsettledness. And in Philippians chapter 4, Verses 4 to 9, the context, the first three verses of this chapter, Paul's speaking to some people that are at odds with one another, and he's calling the church to unity and to be of one heart and one mind. Um, he names people. How'd you like that? <laughs> Forever in the Bible. He's like, as the ones who couldn't get along. Um, in verse 4, he picks up 
we pick up the words, rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. It's almost like he's saying, no, I mean it. <laughs> rejoice in the Lord. No, 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 let me back up. Again, I mean it, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is near. Basically, don't let your circumstances determine how you treat one another. The Lord is present, obviously, with us, and his return is imminent. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God. Can we say peace of God? Peace of God. Which goes beyond all human understanding. Basically saying it doesn't make sense. This is, this is hard to explain. Peace is one of those things you know when you have it and you know when you don't. Isn't that true? Um, but it's, it's kind of like, and the, and the peace of God, which transcends our ability to even understand it because it's not tethered to our circumstances. It's not like this is the peace that comes because I have money in the bank or the peace that comes because he asked me to marry him or this isn't the peace that comes because I got into that school um, that I wanted to get into. This is a peace that transcends circumstances. It doesn't make sense because I have peace when I shouldn't have peace based on the circumstances. So I'm going to try to explain the unexplainable today. A peace that goes beyond all human understanding. That peace, the peace of God, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or worthy of praise, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Can you say God of peace? peace. The peace of God and the God of peace. Whose peace is it? It's who he is. It's not sourced in us. Its origins is in the divine. It's, it's, it's of God. It's, it's beyond anything of this world. That's why Jesus would say, the peace I give you is not as the world gives you. You can't find it in this world. So this place of this is who God is and the promises God says, I will be peace in you. Imagine how much peace God has right now. Imagine if you were God. You're never under threat. You're never under duress. You're never worried about the future. You don't say things like, you know what just occurred to me? You know, like you never have to learn something that you didn't know before. There's, there's nothing that you don't understand or that's not in your line of sight that, that imagine you're not driven, you're not harried, you're in complete control. All things are under your control. Imagine how much peace you would have if you had all knowledge about everything and you were completely in control of everything. That God will be peace in you. And how many of you would say, I, I could use a little more peace? Because it seems like it's hard to get and easy to lose, doesn't it? I've never heard anybody say, this peace is killing me. I've just had it. I'm just like, too much peace. I was like, I had so much peace last night, I could hardly sleep. That, that it's like, no, I think there's something in all of us. It's like, 
I don't want there to be kind of like you're trying to catch a butterfly. You know, it's so delicate and fleeting and, and so tenuous. But what if it is? Because when you read this section of scripture, you understand peace in kind of a unique way. That this is one of the weapons, Paul says, that God will war over your life with. That the peace of God will stand guard. That's a military term. It's like a sentinel at its post that's putting this fortress of peace around your heart and around your mind that's impenetrable to the assaults and the anxious um, fear of the enemy that wants to come and disrupt and disorient you. It's like God will guard when your heart feels like it's starting to fragment and pull apart or you're just exhausting yourself mentally, laying in bed at night trying to figure out a solution. And it's like God will put your mind at rest doesn't even mean necessarily that you understand it and have it figured out. You'll just be, it doesn't make sense. My heart is good. In the midst of some really tough stuff, my heart is really, really good. Why is that? Because God is warring over my life, protecting me with his peace. I think to live as a person of peace is probably one of the most countercultural ways we can live in the world today. Like, why aren't you fretful? Why aren't you angry? Why aren't you driven by bitterness? The Bible says that, remember in Isaiah, we always read this verse at Christmas, Isaiah 9, that he shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father, the Mighty God, the, the Prince of Peace. Then the next verse says, and of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Where he governs, where he rules, where he reigns, the fruit of that is peaceable. That's why when we talk about the millennial reign of Jesus, it's a, the lion lays down with the lamb and children put their hands in the snake's den and don't get bit. It's like, why? Everything's at, at oneness together. Everything's as it should be. Everything's right. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The scripture says that the fruit of righteousness is peace. When things are made right, there's peace. Jesus makes things right through his death and resurrection in our life. And the fruit of that is we're at peace with God. And there's the possibility of peace with one another. The scripture says you'll go out with joy, be led forth with peace. That our feet will be shod with the gospel of peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons and daughters of God. We're never more like our father than when we're walking in and making for peace. That is so different than the world in which we live. How many people do you know in your life that are just walking in and they're showing up with peace and peace breaks out wherever they go? That you can be a person of peace, not just like denying reality or unwilling to face facts. We Christians, we traffic in reality. We face facts. That's not what this is about. But we see beyond that. There's something greater than that. And we live in the reality of something that's promised us. And so the scripture that we just read, is that meant to just tease us or is that a possibility? Can the peace of God guard my heart and mind? Can the God of peace be with me and in me? Do not be anxious about anything. Do you know that Kindle, the online app for Amazon's online uh, bookstore and library, um, they say that, uh, this will probably shock you, they track everything that's underlined or highlighted and online. 
And uh, but all the online scripture reading that's done in version, the most used um, downloaded Bible app in the world, says the same thing. The most highlighted verse of all of scripture is not John 3.16 or Psalm 23. It's these words. Do not be anxious about anything. You know, on all online literature, Kindle says the most highlighted sentence comes from the second book of the Hunger Games series. And it's this sentence. Because sometimes things happen to people and they're not equipped to deal with them. That's the most highlighted sentence of all of online literature for Kindle. Sometimes just stop. We're victims of circumstance. Just can't control. It just is what it is. And for believers, like, I don't have to be anxious for anything. Why is that? Because the possibility of peace is rooted in the reality and the truth of who God is in my life and what he's done for me in Jesus Christ. It may be normative to be anxious, but is that supposed to be what's true of us as believers? And that's kind of the quest I'm in. I, I, it's like, God, I want to walk in peace. You know, I want to be bold. I want to be certain. I want to have conviction. I want to face facts, but... I want to walk in that. And so I understand that we're, we're integrated beings. We're holistic people. We're body, soul, and spirit. And it just all works together, doesn't it? Um, how many of you understand sometimes when you're exhausted physically, that can affect you emotionally? Yeah. You ever done that? And sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. You know, remember in the story of Elijah when he was running from Jezebel and Ahab and he was, God, just kill me. I want to die. And an angel shows up and says in the King James, made him a cake on the coals and said, eat and then sleep. It's like, sometimes eat some cake and take a nap. That's like, to me, that's like, that's like a life verse for me. That's like, it's, those are words to live by right there. Um, I get it. Sometimes it's like, man, I need to exercise. I need to get out in creation. I get out in nature and um, need to sleep better. And, you know, I get it. We're, we're all interrelated. But I, I want to speak primarily to this aspect of a decision that we make. And this is where I want to go back to our text. Because embedded in the text are, is the promise of his peace, but it's experienced on the basis of something else. And so Paul gives three commands. They're, they're directives, and they're not like you're going to earn your way to peace. What he's basically commanding them to do is to make a decision. That he's appealing to you at the basis of your will. The most foundational human freedom is this. You always can choose how you respond in any circumstance. That, that he's not saying you're going to control your circumstances and this is how you're going to arrange your world. He's saying no matter what you face, no matter what comes at you, here's what I want you to choose at that moment you feel like your heart is overwhelmed, at the minute where it feels like things are closing in around you or you're starting to fragment inside, here's what I want you to choose. I want you to take this stance. And make a decision in regards to these three things. And so he appeals to our will. Victor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, he was a Holocaust survivor and a renowned psychiatrist. And he said that he was interested while he was in, um, I think he was in Auschwitz, the, 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 the camp that he was in. He watched the most hor just horrendous, heinous things happen to people. The, the worst that one human could do to another human, he witnessed that. And he goes, people that were powerless circumstantially. And he watched many people just give up despair and die, and others who were able to endure. And he wondered, why did some endure and others don't? And he 
really just synthesize it down to this one thing. It's just the choices they made. I refuse to become the evil being done to me. I refuse to respond with hate for hate. You give me a little crusty piece of bread, I choose to share that with somebody else. You curse me and beat me, I'm choosing to forgive you and to bless you. It's like, you, you can take everything from me, but you can't take my ability to choose. And what Paul's saying is, you can always choose to obey God. You can always choose to hope in God. In any circumstance or any situation there is, not minimizing the circumstances or the significant of significance of them, but you can always choose in the midst of whatever circumstance, these three things. So here's the first thing. I'm going to just kind of work through these real quick and we'll be done and then we're going to go eat because there's food out there and um, we don't have to end up at Denny's. So uh, here's the first one. Magnify God. So whenever your heart starts to get overwhelmed, circumstances are pressing in, here's what Paul says. He uses these Bible words. Rejoice in the Lord. Okay, no, I mean it. Rejoice in the Lord. So rejoice is a Bible word. It's a kind of compound word, read joy. It's like, be joyful in God. Don't be joyful in your circumstance. Be joyful in God that is trans-circumstantial. He's greater. He's beyond your, he's not limited by your circumstance. So in the middle of your circumstance, I want you to step back and I want you to make God big and just in your praise. I want you to magnify God and see your circumstance reframed in light of who he really is the truth of who he is, because the opposite of joy, rejoice, is not sadness. The opposite of joy is hopelessness and despair, and I'm never without hope when I have God. God is with me, and so if God is for me, I can do anything. Without God in the story, it's me against the devil. It's me against my circumstance. It's me against the issue I'm facing, but with God, I'm unlimited in potential because I can be as strong as he is in that situation, and so I step back and I magnify, and so we get to these kind of statements, be anxious for nothing. And we always want to qualify when we hear something like that. We always want to qualify it. No, wait a second. You don't understand who I'm married to. No, wait a second. You, you, no, no, you don't know where I work. You don't know what that's like. You don't know my family of origin. So we, it's, it's uncanny. Like this last year, I'd say things like, when the scripture says don't be anxious, like, well, you, and we want to qualify it. We don't do that with other commands. Thou shall not murder. Wait a minute. <laughs> you expect me to go my whole life, you know. But, I mean, think about this for a moment. So, let's put it in these words. Do not worry. We're told multiple times, Matthew 6, do not worry. Who told us those words? Jesus. Who says, do not be anxious? Paul. He is sitting in a prison cell in Rome facing imminent death. He has had a ministry of suffering. When he was ordained on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus. Hands were laid on him, and God said to the person who laid hands on him, tell him the things he must suffer for my name's sake. This guy suffered his whole life in ministry and now sitting in a prison cell about to be put to death. He's the one telling you, rejoice. We're not going to top his story. We're not going to top Jesus' story of suffering. Those are the two people that are saying, don't worry, don't be anxious. And, and why is that? Jesus is saying, because you have a father. You're not a spiritual orphan. You have a father. 
He loves you. He sees you. He took care of the flower, the bird. How much more does he love you? Aren't we supposed to write to the people in prison and say, hang in there, camper? The guy in the prison is writing to us. Rejoice. I'm chained, but I'm unchained. And my freedom and my ability to magnify and experience the reality. And so one of the things they say is the number one driver of anxiousness is this preoccupation with ourselves. And when we begin to praise God, we interrupt or disrupt this focus that's on me and it reframes everything in light of his bigness. That's why singing as we did this morning mattered. It's not just this ritual that we do. We sing our songs and we're going to have some videos and then we're going to have some amazing talk and then we're going to have an offering and then... no. There's a reason we come before God with thanksgiving and praise. We enter his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts of praise. Why do we do that? Because we're in our singing, in our together lifting of our voices, we're not only making a decision, but we're calling to one another. In Ephesians, sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're saying to one another, put your hope in God. I don't know what's going on. Your life might be hanging in the balance, but God does. Let's lift our gaze. Let's let him be the glory and the lifter of our head. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. Let's lift, let's see him enthroned above all things. Let's start there. Let's lift our heads. Let's come before him and praise when we take that posture to rejoice, to praise. We, it's like we're shifting the focus. It, it, lifts our focus, it puts our gaze and reminds us we're part of something eternal, someone who's enthroned above all things. This is not a Randy-centered world. This is a God-centered world. This is not about me and what I can do. This is about God and his faithfulness and his power in and through me. And so the devil comes and his job isn't to try to get you to do bad stuff and break God's rules. His job is to get you to take your eyes off of Jesus. Because if your eyes are on Jesus, the Bible says, I can run through a troop. I can overcome a, run through a wall and overcome a troop. I can, I can do all things through Jesus who gives me strength. He wants you to put your eyes, let's magnify the circumstance. Let's magnify the person. Let's magnify my limitations. He doesn't want because there's warfare that's happening when we're worshiping and praising God. So when the scripture says... Put on in Isaiah chapter 6, put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. The spirit of heaviness. The enemy coming and anointing your circumstances with fear and sorrow and heaviness. In exchange for that, put on the garment of praise. Who puts on, you didn't just, I didn't walk by my closet this morning and just kind of fall in and come out and go like, whoa, uh, I got this on. Guess I'm wearing this. Um, Whatever your opinion of, is it, of it is, I chose to put it on. I, I put it on. Nobody can put it on for you. In this circumstance, I'm putting on the garment of praise. I'm taking a stance. I know the devil hates it. But we're told that the condition of our heart and soul is so connected to our focus. What am I focused on? We're heading into the Olympics here in a few weeks, and Northwestern University did a study a few years ago on medal winners in the Olympics, and they, they were trying to equate levels of discontent or happiness based on the medal, and they said that silver medalists were the most unhappy of the three medalists. And do you know why? Because it was like, man, I was like right there. Just where's their focus on what they didn't get? 
The happiest were not the gold medal winners. The happiest were the bronze medalists. Because they were like, man, I almost got nothing. <laughs> you know, it was like, I'm just, just, just happy to be here. You know, whoa. Uh, like a, their, their, their attitude was correlated to the place where they put their attention. Grateful, thankful, just what an awesome experience. Man, I could have. I wonder if I just... God, this morning, I'm, I'm choosing. Put my focus on you. It shifts the focus. The second thing... Paul tells us his prayer emotions. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation. So what is he saying? I don't care. Name the situation. It's a roommate situation. It's a work situation. It's a, any situation. This, this is what I want you to do. When you're about to be full of anxiousness, I want you to do this instead. With prayer and petition and thanksgiving, I want you to present your request to God. So if praise shifts the focus, prayer shifts the burden. I cast my cares on him because he cares for me. And there's an interesting word because this is the context of an emotional engagement here. This is about managing anxiousness and thoughts. This isn't just some broad general sense of prayer. This is a specific aspect of prayer that he's talking about. So he uses these words, present your request to God. That, that little phrase, present, is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's used after the angel showed up to the shepherds over the fields of Bethlehem and said, go into Bethlehem. A baby's been born, but it's not just any baby. The reality of this baby is the reason why there's all this happiness in heaven. So go see that. And so the shepherds said to one another, let's go see this thing that the angels presented to us. What, is, what are they saying is, the joy that was under that occasion was made known to us. No one else saw that. We got to see that. Paul is saying, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take the emotion that's swirling under that issue, and I want you to present that to God. I want you to take that and present that to him. We just want to say, here's my need. Paul's saying, go deeper. My oldest son, who I discipled, raised to know Jesus. I showed up for work. I said no to a lot of things over the years to be at home during those years of their life. Raised them to love Jesus, know Jesus. Discipled them personally in the word. In his second year at a Christian university, unbeknownst to me, he's reading through his annual Bible reading, reading from cover to cover. He starts every January and does it every year. He starts having questions he's never had before. And so he starts going online to ends up in these Reddit threads and all these kind of atheistic inputs and he starts getting kind of rocked in his belief system and worldview and he starts deconstructing his faith. Then he has a Bible teacher in this Christian university that at a Bible class that says, I'm going to tell you this semester why the Bible isn't true and thank you. Glad I could pay you for that. And um, 10 months later... <clears throat> He comes home for the summer and something's up. And I go, buddy, what's the matter? And he said, he just broke down. He goes, dad, I'm struggling. I want to believe. I'm just struggling to believe. His, his computer science is his, was his degree. And he's, he came out of the womb emotionally constipated. He just came out of the womb living in his head. You know, he's our kid that I could say, that's great carpet. And he'd go, who said? How do you know that's great carpet? It's like, because it is. And... Um, <laughs> Um, 
My next son came out. Faith was really easy for him. He came out believing Jesus. You know, I could say that's purple carpet, and you go, okay. You know, just like totally different kids. Um, and we began this journey with him, this long journey. And there was a moment in it. I was really just, I thought I was going to lose my son. Not relationally, but in Jesus, he was going to be an unbeliever. One night I was in the middle of the night on the living room floor, literally crying out to God, and God says, what are you afraid of? And this is what I had to be honest with myself. I said, I'm afraid that I'll be seen as a fraud as a pastor. I'm afraid that I failed as a dad on the one thing that mattered most to me. I'm afraid that my son will not live a life of the fullness you created him for and we won't share something by virtue of our shared relationship and you, I'm afraid I'm going to have grandkids that won't know you, Jesus. And I took that fear, the emotion under it, and I got honest with God about it and put it right up there. That's when the peace started to come. Not because anything changed at that moment in him, but something changed in what I was carrying and I was honest and I took that and presented that to God. My son now is on the road of a new faith in Jesus, and it was a long journey. It was a long road, but listen. When I was a young pastor, we were pastoring our first church at the age of 27, and people would come, and they would pour out their problems, and, and I thought I had to have profound things to say to people. I had no life experience yet to draw from for the level of stuff people were coming and opening up about. And I just reached a point where I like, Good luck with all that. I don't know. Um, like, I, I was so in over my head. And, um, but I learned something, and I learned this, that it really wasn't about me having profound things to say. There was something almost therapeutic about somebody profoundly listening to you and just listening with compassion and care. And I'll walk with you in that. I'll pray with you about that. We'll go to Jesus together in that. I'll, I'll help find you help where you need in that. But I... It was amazing to me how many people felt like they were well-served because somebody just listened to them. And you have a God who has answers, who has solutions, who's got something to say, but he's a God who's not threatened by your truth either of how you're feeling about the circumstance. He's like, come be honest with me about that and let that exchange happen. Present that to him. The last thing, and I'll just mention it, is to think about what you think about. Isn't most about what we worry about based on what's not true? It's based on hypotheticals. What may happen, what could happen. Um, even if we worry about stuff that is legitimate, Jesus said, your worrying ain't going to change it. How's that good for good English? Ain't going to change it. Um, but what does the scripture say? He will keep in perfect peace the one whose mind is kept on you because he trusts in you. So what does Paul say? Whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is worthy of praise, whatever is excellent, think on these things. And that's not just Bible. Obviously, renew your mind through the truth of the word. And where we spend on average eight to nine hours a day now as people, we're doing this at work apparently, um, doom scrolling. They say just scrolling on the internet. What is fueling? What is feeding our thoughts? And Paul's saying, look around you, there's good things. Look around you, there's admirable things. What are you, you kind of find what you're looking for, don't you? You're like, you can choose to think about 
certain things. You have been given power over what you think about. You can, there, neurologists are telling us now that there's a plasticity to our neural pathways that we can rechange our thinking patterns and processes. For Jesus, that was centered in the scripture first and foremost. So when the enemy came and tempted him in the wilderness, what did he say? He said, you're lying. You're a liar. That is not true. And when we're living with renewed minds and our thoughts are centered in that which is truth and life-giving and the enemy comes and was like, your son will never love Jesus again. Your son's going to fry in hell. Your son's like, you're a liar. That's not true. Whatever is lovely, whatever is good, think on those things. Nowhere in the scripture does it say whatever is corrupt and whatever is deceitful and whatever is horrible, think on those things. There's a decision that I can make, and the reality is we want to learn and we engage our mind. We love God with our heart, soul, and mind. We love, we can intellectually know and understand as well as believe and walk by faith, but the devil will exhaust you with endless reasoning, and there are some things that our mind can only take us so far in, and our mind needs to be put at rest, just rest in the promises, in the truth of God. We don't like solitude because we don't like maybe what starts surfacing. We need to be distracted constantly. And we can come to a place where I could be quiet and still before the Lord and not just be consumed by anxious thoughts, but there's a settled peace to my mind. I want you to pray with me if you would.